Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 299 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Thursday, March 28, 2013. Coming up on today's show, that's right, March Madness continues on this show today. <laughs> I'll be milking that for, well, it's the last show I can do that. I'll be talking about the importance of media messaging. That's right, a little bit different topic today. I'm very excited about it. I'll be sharing a, uh, uh, an essay entitled, Mainstream Media Can Help Share Our Stories by our friend Dr. Reed Blackwalder, AAFP president-elect. And more interestingly, I'll be analyzing some recent media appearances from family physicians and the messaging lessons we can learn all that coming up on episode 299 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, starting right now. medicine and social media this is the family medicine rocks podcast i am your host my name is mike sabella your favorite family physician host that's right what is this show about i get that question a lot here i tell people this is uh, social media through the eyes of a family physician i encourage you to check out my digital library of stuff at familymedicinerocks.com and the, the the website is, is and the link is finally fixed, <laughs> thanks to my friends over at Hover.com into Squarespace. So you can go and check that out. And uh, shout out to everybody following me on Twitter. All uh, let me see here. All eleven thousand seven hundred forty-five people following me on Twitter. Thank you so much for that. And also a uh, big shout out to everybody following the uh, Facebook page for this show. All seven hundred. 77 people. That's right. I'm not making that up. Uh, Facebook.com slash FanMedRocks. And uh, today is Thursday, March 28, 2013. It is 11 a.m. Eastern time. And uh, here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters, it is uh, feels like uh, 28 degrees Fahrenheit. So thank you much, so much for joining me. It is uh, Holy Thursday. Uh, for those of you who observe and uh, celebrate that, also Passover, I believe, as well. So uh, uh, no guest today because uh, it was difficult to schedule anybody this week. Uh, but uh, how's your week going there, kids? Uh, it's going uh, well here at Family Medicine Rocks uh, World uh, Headquarters here. So, uh, uh, But I'm very excited. Before we get into today's topic, uh, very excited. One week from today, get ready, kids. Show number 300. I know. I have not been canceled yet. 
Thank you so much for Block Talk Radio for that. But one week from today, very excited about this conversation, Thursday, April 4, 2013, at noon Eastern time, uh, will be uh, my friend Meredith Gould, digital strategist, author, blogger, founder of the church social media chat, hashtag CHSOCM. And uh, this uh, interview kind of sprouted after a tweet that she had last week. It goes like this. Ah, Twitter, I remember when public conversations offered rich engagement among tweets wrestling with great questions. Now I only get that through direct message. And I've, I've seen a, a change a little bit in uh, social media in the, in the past uh, few years. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. And, uh, of course, as I mentioned, uh, she also has uh, some uh, religious-slash-spiritual type uh, issues that she talks about as well. And uh, she may pry a little bit out of that uh, with me uh, next week, so it'll be an interesting uh, show. Also coming up in April, uh, previewing uh, some uh, family medicine meetings. The uh, huge Society of Teachers of Family Medicine meeting coming up in May, their annual meeting. Uh, we'll be previewing that. Also, the American Academy of Family Physicians National Conference of Special Constituencies coming up at the end of April. We'll be previewing that. And also, uh, a meeting I'll be speaking at in just a couple weeks uh, in the great state of Nebraska, the Nebraska Academy of Family Physicians. I'll be there speaking about, of course, social media and family medicine. Uh, so uh, very exciting April coming up uh, here on the show. But on today's show, I'll be uh, sharing an essay, and also I'll be analyzing some audio clips. That's what I did do show prep for this show. I'm analyzing some audio clips of some recent family physician media appearances. So uh, you've got to stay tuned for that. But first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for having me be a, a featured show here on this network and uh, always in the, uh, I don't know, top uh, top 15, top 20 uh, health shows uh, in the category here at Blog Talk Radio. That is thanks to all of you out there for your live listens and for your downloads. Uh, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes um, as well. So thank you so much for that. And uh, if you're curious, yes, I am a real doctor. Uh, I am a family physician in full-time private practice, meaning I see patients five days a week in the hospital and in my office. I've been a social media hobbyist since 2005. And I will take my break, and we'll talk about media after the break here. Very excited about this topic coming up. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. Just Google FM Revolution for more details. Also, a member of the ProMed Network, a podcast you can get there by going to ProMedNetwork.com. Media messaging and family medicine the discussion right after this. <laughs>
That's right. Family Medicine's leading voice in social media, in my own mind. This is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast on Holy Thursday here on the Blog Talk Radio Network. My name is Mike Sabilla. Go check out FamilyMedicineRocks.com. Uh, so the topic today is media and analyzing media. And let me tell you, um, you know, as you haven't figured it out already, I love talking about this stuff. I mean, you know, I like, you know, academics in medicine. I think academics is important, but I am by no means an academician at all. Now, research is very important in medicine. I, I believe that it is, but of course I'm not a researcher. And of course, health policy, hugely important, but I know enough health policy uh, to be dangerous. <laughs> but when it comes to media, social media, traditional media, I just love talking about this stuff. And I hope and I <laughs> it comes out during the midst of the show today. The first topic of today will be an essay, it's an essay by our good friend AAFP, President-elect Dr. Reed Blackwelder, who has been on this show in the past, I encourage you to uh, check out his interview here a few months ago. But he wrote a, a, an essay uh, this past week on Monday, March 25, 2013, as part of the Leader Voices blog at uh, the AAFP website, aafp.org. And the uh, essay is entitled this, Mainstream Media Can Help Us Share Our Story." And I'll just read a part of this essay. It goes like this. I recently represented the Academy at the Association of Healthcare Journalists annual convention in Boston. This was a dynamic conference that brought together more than 700 journalists from all over the country to explore pertinent topics as well as to network and to develop their skills. I participated in a panel about improving patient outcomes and decreasing costs with the chief nursing officer and senior vice president of patient care services at Tufts Medical Center and Donald Berwick, MD, former head of CMS. And he goes on to say the following. It is important to realize what a critical role journalists play in sharing our message. At this meeting, I recognize that reporters and journalists are often community members who are not looking at ways to help citizens of their towns. Oh, they are. And I, re I already misquoted this. Let me let, let take two. I recognize that reporters and journalists are often community members who are looking at ways to help the citizens of their cities or towns get better health care. These are not folks quick to emphasize partisan talking points. They are truly interested in hearing perspectives and finding middle ground. And I have uh, had that experience as well. I have a little bit of experience with our local uh, media here close to Family Medicine Rocks World headquarters. And it's, it's not just uh, uh, advocating for a particular point of view, whether it's primary care or family medicine or any of that stuff, um, especially at the local level. It's like what we talk about all the time. It's, you know, it's patient-centered messaging. 
what is most important for the patient? What does the patient need to know, whether it's this, uh, you know, clinical illness or what do patients need to know with this hot topic in the news? How does this health policy issue affect patients? That is how media can help us. That is how traditional media can help us. And we can use social media to help bring that message about because that is the communication tool from us as physicians directly to patients, for us as family physicians to patients, directly to patients. It is not through a filter of the reporter or traditional media. Not that there's anything wrong with traditional media, but there has to be a strategy of utilizing both traditional media and social media. They both have to be emphasized equally. Both of their strengths have to be recognized and utilized appropriately and to see which if not both methods of media, traditional media and social media, how they can be used to communicate the right information, the correct information, the information that is most important to patients. And I appreciate Dr. Blackwelder writing about his experience with the uh, Association of Healthcare Journalists. I hope that uh, family physicians write more about their experiences with media. I hope you know, they share some of their tips and tricks to help our colleagues, to help family medicine advocates, how to communicate with traditional media. Because, you know, in medical school and residency, you know, we have enough time trying to learn about the medical portion, you know, disease processes and treatments um, and pathophysiology and all of those words. Not so much comes to media training. And I think more of that needs to happen at the medical school level, at the uh, residency level, even the undergraduate level. I mean, even at all education levels. I mean, you know, you have this, discussion about social media even more and more. You know, close to where I live here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters is Steubenville, Ohio. And it's been in the news. And a lot of it is talking about a lot of that case was prosecuted using social media. Now, I'm not making a value judgment. I'm not saying, you know, any kind of judgment on the case. I'm just saying that Social media was used to document a lot of that case. And I think as Americans, you know, in the education process, at whatever level we need to educate ourselves more on utilizing media and social media. And at some point, I would love to... You know, have Dr. Blackwelder back on the show to discuss his experience, to discuss his specific experience, you know, utilizing media, because um, uh, I know he and I have talked offline about this in the past and the importance of communication, importance of communication from, from 
from physician to patient, uh, importance of communication from an organization to its members, importance of a communication from physicians as leaders in the community to the community itself. Very, very important. And I'll have more to talk about that in, in a little bit. Um, topic two, shifting gears here. Topic two, which is I think the, the probably the more important and more interesting for all of you out there, analyzing and talking about recent uh, media appearances by family physicians. And I've been wanting to talk about this for a couple of weeks. And the, the first example I'm going to talk about is um, a, 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 a breakfast, a press conference from political politico.com, I believe that happened last week, having to do with talking about scope of practice issues, having to talk about specifically family medicine, primary care, nurse practitioners, Yes, I know. I'm going to talk about nurse practitioners on this show. <laughs> what I want to break down is some of the the you know the media analysis of this, the response to this, the the some of the messaging that I think family medicine has to be prepared for. Uh, so Politico had this uh, uh, breakfast last week, and it had panelists including. Uh, Wanda Filer from the AFP Board of Directors. It was a representative uh, from the American Association of Nurse Practitioners. And there was an article, a follow-up article in Politico uh, later that day, and I'm going to quote this here, uh, quote from Politico. The health system is uh, gearing up for millions of new patients under Obamacare, and experts are worried that an already strained primary care system could buckle unless other healthcare professionals are marshaled to perform primary care. Paragraph two, quote, we need to get away from the old system of fragmented care and really work on team-based care, said Wanda Filer, a director of the American Academy of Family Physicians at a political pro-breakfast briefing on Tuesday morning. The article goes on to say, to that end, nurse practitioners, nurse midwives, physician assistants, and other health professionals should take on more of the burden of primary care, working to top off their training and freeing up doctors to address other challenges she and other experts said. And it was really interesting, you know, seeing that live on Politico that morning. Kudos to the American Academy of Family Physicians to getting the word out to uh, some key people in the family medicine community uh, to help support the academy, to help support Dr. Filer, um, especially on Twitter. A uh, big shout-out to our friends uh, at the Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians who uh, did a great job uh, documenting it on Twitter and on Storify. Go to uh, uh, the PAFP website to uh, check all of that out. And I'm going to play a clip here from Dr. Filer. That, uh, was, it's only a minute and 23 seconds. But this is, this is the messaging uh, that was put out there. Uh, that I think is very important, and I think during the course of that breakfast um, that this message was able to resonate, and here is Dr. Filer. The perspective of family physicians. 
this is a moment where you're going to have a lot more people covered in the next couple of years. Everybody's worried about the primary care access. You're the front line. What, how do you see this moment of this issue coming to the head, and, and why is there so much dissension around it? Well, first of all, thank you for having us here. I um, have been in practice for 25 years. I work at a federally qualified health center. Um, in the American Academy, in the American Academy of Family Physicians, we have almost 106,000 members. And as we look at our member surveys, we are already doing about eight uncompensated visits a week per member. And we have been working to care for that group of people, but we believe that health care is health care for all. And we are thrilled with the focus on primary care. Um, our belief is that we need to think a, a way, get away from the old system of fragmented care and really work at team-based care and that allow everyone within the system. I work every day next to nurse practitioners, physician assistants, pharmacists, diabetic educators, behaviorists, and it's an extraordinary opportunity to get the right care to the, for the, that patient at the right time. And so we believe a redesign and, and there's a patient-centered medical home where we work as a collaborative team is the best way to go. So what happened there? So what happened was, you know, that that was uh, very well done, uh, Dr. Filer, in in saying that this is not a physician versus nurse practitioner issue. You know, you know this this is this is a a healthcare system wide issue that needs to be changed, changed from a, a fee for service type of payment system to, to quality. Um, we already take care of a lot of, uh, you know, uh, charity care, uncompensated, you know, patients, you know, because that's what we do as family physicians. Um, and, you know, our, our, the, the goal of this is to increase primary care for everybody, not just you know, one group at the expense of another group. And I thought that that, that breakfast went very well. Uh want to give a big shout-out and kudos to the moderator of that, who I believe kept it very fair. And also, in listening again, you know, to the president of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, you know, the president there and her comments kind of focused on a system-wide type of look as well. Um, I didn't hear any kind of, you know, personal attacks, you know, it's, it, it, was, it was very much advocating for their point of view, which I very much respect. I disagree with, but I, I do respect it. And for the most part, you know, the social media family medicine community during that hour and a half session, I think, did very well on Twitter, trying to say, hey, you know, this is about the patient. You know, we should increase primary care for everybody, and it should not be pitting one group against another group. So if you want to get more information, there's some information at political.com. Also, our friends at the, uh, uh, at the Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians very much documented what happened that day. Kudos to them. And I will move on to my next uh, topic here, and, and this is again coming back to um, our friend uh, Dr. Reed Blackwelder, who was on a radio show uh, earlier this week uh, called the uh, Diane Reem Show, 
And it was on, I believe, on uh, Tuesday. And you're going to hear and you're going to see very much of a different framing of the same uh, discussion. And it started out on, on, on the radio show website there. And, and, and the title of, of, the, uh, of the post that introduced the whole segment was this. It was called The Role of Nurse Practitioners right out there. You know, nothing about scope of practice language. It's nothing about primary care. It is was focused solely on nurse practitioners. And this is this is how the the introduction to the show went. It said in 18 states plus the District of Columbia, nurse practitioners are allowed to treat patients and prescribe medications without a doctor's involvement. Lawmakers in a number of other states are pushing for similar changes to so-called, quote, scope of practice, unquote, laws that determine what nurse practitioners can do for patients. Proponents argue expanding the roles of nurse practitioners can address what has become a major problem, a shortage of primary care doctors. But for many physicians, say a team-based approach that includes at least one doctor is better for patients, please join us to discuss the role of nurse practitioners. And uh, in addition to uh, our our friend uh, Dr. Blackwalder, uh, they had uh, two nurse practitioners and, and also a, a journalist from Kaiser Health News. And as I was listening to that live as well, you know, I was hoping, I was hoping that the moderator there, you know, would be able to, <laughs> you know, give a, a more balanced approach uh, to both sides of the point of view. And it was very clear early on how this framing of this discussion was happening. And I felt bad for Dr. Blackwelder because, I mean, you know, uh, as the moderator kept asking question after question, it was um, it, it was a lot of, well, why doesn't family medicine, why doesn't family physicians allow there's practitioners to do this, you know, completely, you know, reframing the whole discussion and argument. And it was clear from the start, from the jump, from the very beginning, that Dr. Blackwelder had to play defense, had to try to shift the discussion to say, hey, this is about taking care of patients. This is about uh, the reforming the healthcare system. This is not about us versus them. And I, I you know, I, I could <laughs> I would love to have seen a live video camera <laughs> uh on him while he's listening to this uh in a uh radio studio because he had to be he had to be getting really upset because <laughs> I know I was getting really upset. And you know, one of the only questions I have I have an audio clip here from the show. And uh this clip here uh, is and I can find it here. Uh, two minutes and forty-two seconds. This was the longest amount of time he was allowed to speak during the whole sixty-minute session. <laughs> this was the first question he was, and this was the most positive. <laughs> the rest of it was responding to Dr. Blackwelder. Why doesn't family medicine allow nurse practitioners to do more? It was just like, oh man. So this 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 was his first crack at a question. 
and uh, I will play this two minutes and 42 seconds uh, from earlier this week. This is our good friend, the president-elect of the uh, American Academy of Family Physicians, Dr. Reed Blackwelder. Dr. Reed Blackwelder, I gather some primary care physicians are really opposed to having nurse practitioners work without MDs entirely. Tell us why. I think the main thing that family physicians are against is the fragmentation of our healthcare system and the tendency toward having little pockets, whether that's independent practice in this state or isolated groups in another. That's been shown to be one of the main factors in why we're spending more in this country for health care and getting worse outcomes. So what we're really pushing and feel the data is showing makes a difference are for physician-led teams. Um, I'm really excited about the discussions about primary care and the patient-centered medical home, but those are kind of buzzwords that are easy to misunderstand. And we're trying to help clarify how best we can bring the right care for the right patient at the right time and the right place throughout our country and not in isolated pockets from state to state with different models. So would you be in favor of a standard across the country then that allowed nurse practitioners to operate on their own independently? That's a really good point. One of the things that you you know about a family physician once they've gone through undergraduate medical school and residency, doesn't matter what school, what residency in this country, having that degree and that training, you know that 21,000 hours of training, you know they have a bachelor's degree, you know exactly what uh, they have based on their title. Unfortunately, with the different state regulations, uh, APRNs, you can't have that same um, consistency. 75% will have a master's. Um, You're not sure how many hours, whether it's um, 3,800 to 6,600, how much clinical training is involved just from the title alone. What I'm pleased with is the APRN has a consensus model trying to standardize the process from RN to APRN. This was finished in 2008, and they're hoping for a movement to 2015. But the problem is this ongoing educational push and the approach to coordinating licensure, accreditation, certification um, is still just a, um, a model. It's not in place yet, and that creates silos of care. It creates uncertainty of what the training and education experience might be from state to state and sometimes practice to practice. So of course, you know that was uh, very well done. That was ten minutes into the into the show earlier uh, earlier this week. But uh, for the rest of the fifty minutes, including the two or three callers that they had, uh, it was all you know <laughs> pro independent practice nurse practitioner. You know, uh, so in, in a show like that, I mean, it's just it's just it just it just makes your skin crawl. You know, I mean, it's just you know, I mean, I, I, I'm you know, I'm all for you know independent practice nurse practitioners expressing their point of view, you know, but in a forum like that, um, you know, why didn't they have a family physician on, you know, another one? <laughs> why did they have, you know, uh, so, so it's, so in, that is why I believe, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that the family medicine community, the family medicine revolution, you know, we need to be more educated on this to be advocates for ourselves. Um, and I'll have more on that uh, later in the show. But let's kind of move on. Let's move on from that topic and, and uh, uh, let's talk about a, 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 another topic here. 
and I'm going to be talking about a, a radio appearance by my good friend, Dr. Kathleen London, uh, uh, on a Chicago radio show uh, last week. Uh, you're going to want to uh, listen to this because it's very interesting stuff. The topic was um, uh, CVS Pharmacy wanting their employees uh, to get a health screening physical, um, or they will pay a fine. Uh, this is an article here uh, that, I'll, uh, uh, that I'll read a little bit from as background. This is from ABC News. Um, a health policy by CBS Pharmacy requires every one of its 200,000 employees who use its health uh, plan to submit uh, their weight, body fat, glucose, and other vital uh, statistics or pay a monthly fee. Employees who agreed uh, to this testing will see no charge in their health insurance rates, but those who refuse to pay, uh, who, who refuse, will have to pay $50 a month extra or $600 a year for the company's health insurance program. All employees will have until May 1, 2014, to make an appointment with a doctor uh, and record their vitals. Uh, later in the article, it says this: the goal of this, uh, these kinds of programs, is to end up with a healthy workforce. If your employees are healthy, they're going to work better and uh, not going to cost your employer a lot less money. A lot of other companies are doing this. Uh, CBS insists that the use of health screenings by employer-sponsored health plans is a common practice. A quick search of the Internet shows many websites and message boards filled with questions from families asking if similar programs and policies are legal. So that kind of sets the stage for this very entertaining eight-minute uh, chat uh, with a Chicago radio station and our uh, good friend, uh, Dr. Kathleen London, family physician, uh, and uh, this will be fun here. Check this out. Um, all right, it's a little out of their scope. Okay, let me, uh, <laughs> Dr. London, thank you for calling. I'm going to just get, get, continue on with that. the ruse that she right. calls us. Okay. Uh, and I want to ask you about this very interesting story that the CVS brand, the CVS chain of stores, uh, they have a they have a, a new way of looking at the healthcare deal. We've talked you, you know over the years we have talked about the the healthcare plan and how healthcare is changing now and what Obamacare is going to mean and what what even before Obamacare starts what other kinds of changes mechanisms that they that your health insurance the people who have health insurance right now not government insurance you know private sector insurance what kind of stuff if you work for somebody and you've got health through your place you work. What sorts of things are they asking of you, and how does it work, and what's going on? And listen to this. CVS is going to require that it's 200,000 employees, by the way, who participate in their health insurance plan, get a health screening, which will be paid for by CVS, and that will assess their weight, height, body fat, and cholesterol levels. If they do not do this, they will have to pay $600 more for their health care coverage. Now, I ask you this, Dr. London. Let's think in the grand scheme, the meta world Ooh. of healthcare. Is this where we're all heading? I, th I mean, yeah, I think we have to start taking responsibility. This is putting personal responsibility. You want to be a fat ass and not work out and <laughs> eat junk? Then you're going to pay more. Yeah, that's how it works. It's called personal responsibility. There are factors that are not changeable. Um, and of uh, those factors that are not changeable, th that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about your body fat percentage. Um, cholesterol, there's some hereditary aspect of it, but um, I think this is great. I'm all for, you know, 
tax alcohol, tax cigarettes, tax junk food, sugary drinks. Because what are you a Buddhist monk? Gotta, we are breaking the bank with obesity. Well, Dr. London, uh, what is the medical definition of a fat ass? How do we know if we've hit that? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, anywhere from obesity to morbid obesity. You kind of you know, know if you are, right. don't you? Know you? What? I, I think it's like a pornography. You know it when you see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or have it. Okay, so, uh, you know, there was so much talk during... And don't, don't get on. I know how you, you... Sometimes you get on your high horse there, doctor. And I, don't, get, don't, don't get on the high horse here. I'm just going to bring this up. I know that during, you know, years ago during the... the, the uh, 2008 election, Sarah Palin was talking about death panels, and that's what this is all going to be, or after the 2008 election in 2010. They're talking about the death panels and we, uh, re- reversing Obamacare. But, I, you know, and I would make the argument that all of that death panel stuff was, it, regardless of who was going to do it, it was coming down the whether it was the government doing it or it's the private sector health insurance carriers doing it. Mm-hmm. It was all coming down the, down the road because there are certain things that they just don't want to pay for anymore because there's extraordinary expenses. If they can toss you off, sort of like it seems to me that the, that the private insurance companies were like the people who are the, just been through a drive-by, and one of the guys in the car got shot, and they just want to drive by the hospital, throw the guy on the, uh, on the pavement in front of the hospital, and speed away. Because that's what they want to do with people who are going to be very expensive to care for. But that's, death panels refer to total idiocy that doesn't exist, which is that, um, that they will now pay for me to do end-of-life screening, you know, of what kind of care do you want. You know, do you want to be DNR and things like that? So before we do the screening and not get paid for it, now we actually get paid for it. Um, and so that that's where that comes from. And it, so she's, let's not even go there with I know it. Get, get off the horse. Get off the horse. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that no matter how we do this, we're screwed. And I think we were screwed. We were baked in the cake screwed. I don't know that the – and, and I, I, I can just tell you in terms of, you know, where the Affordable Care Act, as it's officially known, or Obamacare, even as the president calls it now. Meekare. Coming up. And, coming up, and it, you know, the, the, first, the beginning of this you know, starts to kick in January 1 of next year. There is going to be a – you know, you see companies already making changes, right? I mean, I look around the corporate structure. Oh, I don't have to look too far in this building to see the corporate structure changing, where they've gotten rid of all the full-time employees they can possibly get rid of and put them as part-timers because they don't, they don't know what that's going to mean for them in terms of who, what they have to offer in terms of health care. And I see this going everywhere, and now that you see CBS doing this, people are all upset about it. But I'm with you, doctor. If you believe, if you believe in personal responsibility, this is where it starts. Really? Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, I have a bigger issue with, with companies that, are, are, that aren't already giving their employees health care and then turn around and say, well, we're going to switch all these people to part-time, because that, to me, is social responsibility. You, as an employer, you should be offering health insurance. And, and I, I find it despicable that, you know, Papa Jones will sit there and say, well, it's going to cost 10 cents more pizza. I don't know anyone who isn't willing to pay more than, pay that. You know, it's like, we're happy to pay 10 cents more pizza for you to actually take care of your employees the way you should be. Um, you know, and we had to mandate it because you didn't do it. You know? <laughs> Which is, mm, that's a whole other issue. But yes, personal responsibility means that if you choose to smoke, if you choose to, to drink to excess and eat to excess, it's going to cost more. We, you know, there was just a study that came out the other day that sugary drinks are responsible world in the U.S. for 25,000 deaths a year. 
You know, that's only increasing, not decreasing, as more and more people are overweight and, it, and obese. And it's a fairly easy metric to figure out, right? I mean, because yeah. there's, a, there's a direct relationship. And it, it's, not, it's not so much a sugary drink. It's the sugary drink that, as, and again, I believe that you're the one who used this term to begin with, so don't get offended when I say it, <laughs> doctor. But that when the fat ass is yeah. drinking the 64-ounce, <laughs> right. uh, you know, double-caffeinated, double-sugared-up drink, then and they are not getting any. They're not going on the Biggest Loser, you know. And they're at that's a healthcare plan. You can you can go apply for the Biggest Loser. There isn't. It doesn't seem that that people understand the, the connection that they are making. They say, "Listen, I got a choice. I want to do it. Fine, you do. But you also have a choice of the consequences. We don't all have to pay for your decision." Well, let me ask you two very quickly in the last minute or so we have, Doctor London. What about when someone's lucky enough, fortunate enough to have good full family coverage, and they have children? who are morbidly obese, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds. I mean, are the companies going to start saying, we'd also like to take a look at your kids as well? I mean, right. I think right now most of us pay for our families on mm-hmm. health care. Right. But the, it's only the employers only covering the employee. Um, and, and that's going to come down the pike, absolutely. As a parent, you're responsible for your kids. If, you know, if you're giving them sodas the size of their head. You know. <laughs> right. I know, it's true. Let me ask you a question. Uh, Doctor, have you ever had a burrito the size of your head? Because (laughs) those are very good. Well, you know, after, yeah, after a really long bike ride, you know, after a four-hour bike ride, I can have that. That's why I do it. There she goes. goes. Again, she's not on her high horse. She's on her high bicycle. (laughs) She's on. (laughs) All right, Dr. Kathleen London, thank you. Appreciate it, as always. Thanks for having me. All right, bye. Dr. Chaya, C-H-A-Y-A, on Twitter, by the way. I just think a lot of people, she's a great doctor, but a lot of people walk out of her office weeping. Just oh, because of things she said to them. Badass! You know, stripes are really not helping you. <laughs> <laughs> We're back live. So this is this is why Dr. Kathleen London is awesome, okay? Because, you know, she's funny. She's knowledgeable. Um, she's been doing this for a long time. She only does radio. She does TV work. Um, and uh, th- that is the type of media, family physician, primary care physician that we need out there. You know, I mean, that's, that's what we did. It's not all about, you know, serious health policies type stuff. I mean, sometimes family docs do commentary and interviews on what some of the hot topics are, you know, and, and what some of the news headlines are. Um, so that's a different style that she has, you know. <laughs> she knows when to use language like fat ass. I mean, it's just, it's just awesome. I had to play that back like four times, and I'm still laughing about it uh, because she knows. She's media savvy. She knows that we'll get attention. She knows that that uh, that, that is the type of stuff uh, that is good radio. <laughs> so we have a lot to learn from that, you know. And, you know, as family docs, you know, we don't get that training. We don't get that training in, in, in medical school and residency. We get training by doing it, Okay. I, I, you know, I, I didn't get any training, you know, doing a podcast or doing a radio show or, or doing TV interviews. You know, you, 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 you learn about it by doing it, or you talk to your friends and colleagues and to say, hey, you know, you know what, what, what can I do? You know, how, how can I learn more about this? I get email every day from docs all across the country and say, hey, you know, Mike, I like what you're doing. You know, I want to try to dip into this a little bit. I'm very intimidated. Um, you know, what kind of tips can you give me? And it's, it's, it, it, is, it is what the family medicine community needs. It's what primary care needs. Uh, we, need we need to be advocates for our specialties, but we need to be advocates for our patients first. 
And, and I have one more audio clip here. Uh, and, and this audio clip is from our good friend, superstar family doctor, Dr. Ryan Newhoffel, Dr. New. He's out there in the in, in the heartland of America, and he's doing direct family medicine, direct primary care. And uh, just this week, he was on the nationally syndicated Laura Ingram radio show. I know people are going to throw stuff at me. You know, this is not a political type of statement. Okay, this is a national radio show. Uh, and they called him up, and this is a kind of a long audio clip, but it, it's important for all of you to listen to the content of it and how he presents things, how he presents family medicine, how he presents direct primary care, how he presents you know, uh, uh, concepts like the patient-centered medical home. And uh, I'm very happy uh, that Dr. New, or Dr. Ryan, uh, was on this radio show this week. I'm probably going to be... Uh, sued uh, because of copyright laws. <laughs> I'm maybe not allowed to play this. Uh, but this is an important clip that I want all of you to kind of listen to uh, and because it is another family doc being an advocate for his patients, being an advocate for family medicine. Um, and here is his uh, clip here uh, from earlier this week. How did you celebrate the three-year anniversary of Obamacare? Well, at the Ingram household, we decided it was cold. Winter's back. (laughs) Never ends. That global warming is really hard to deal with. Now it's all climate change. It's just change. So we had a fire. Well, we threw all of our insurance bills into the fire. That thing lit up like... I can't even follow the codes. When you get your accounting back of what they covered and what they didn't. This is the allowed amount. This is what was charged. Patient responsibility, dot, 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 is. And the codes, you look at the code, well, this wasn't allowed. I can't follow. Half the time when I look at the insurance bills, I can't even follow, like, what procedure it was. They say, well, medical practice, you know, Webster Associates. I said, Webster's? I don't even remember going to Webster Associates. Who's that? Laboratory? What laboratory? I can't even follow the, I'm telling you, you can't even follow the uh, health care bills that you're getting, the the procedures, the codes. I find people just are so overwhelmed with life, they just give up. I mean, at some point, they just give up and write the check. My insurance has gone up 20% this year. People have reported to me that their insurance has gone up 40%, 35%, and over the past three years, the insurance rates have uh, skyrocketed. Since Obamacare was put in place, the average increase of health insurance, I believe, is about 27% since Obamacare came into being. So, again, we promised lower rates. We promised more efficient service. But in the end, I think both employers and employees are finding that it is just a morass of more government regulations that, frankly, you can't track And you can't really comprehend. And it leaves the consumers, the people who need medical assistance, it leaves them in a a terrible quandary. Half of them are wondering whether they should have insurance at all at this point. I think they don't want to be part of these exchanges. These exchanges, half of them aren't even set up. And then you're worried about the care that you get inside the exchanges. And meanwhile, businesses at 48 employees, they're not going anywhere. They're not going up to 51 employees because then they're subject to Obamacare and all the regulations that go along with that. So I knew that when Obamacare really started to take hold and a lot of the hideous aspects of it really kicks in next year, 
2014, but I knew there would be a crop of thinkers who would appear on the scene, innovators, who would decide, well, perhaps there's a better way of doing this. Perhaps, like the president likes to do, he likes to do an end run around Congress. Well, we'll do an end run around Obamacare, and we'll try to provide services in a way that still works for the patients and makes it a decent business to be in for doctors. One of them is Ryan Newhoffel. He likes to be called Dr. New. He's the owner of the New Care Family Medicine. He started his practice in Lawrence, Kansas, went to Kansas City University of Medicine, and has a master's as well as in public health. And his practice operates under the direct primary care model that does not take any insurance, but it actually works with the patients with their means and whatever money they have to make it you know, work for most people. How is he possibly doing this? Dr. New joins us now. The good doctor is in. Hey, doctor, how are you? Nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me on, Laura. Um, speak up, doctor, because it's hard to, hard to hear you there. Thanks, um, thanks for having me on. Okay. Uh, let's talk about this, because a lot of my friends who are in the practice of medicine are very worried, and some of them have decided to leave their private practices and be gobbled up by hospital groups, bigger groups, because it's it's too expensive to be uh, responsible for all the paperwork and so forth. So they're moving into that large practice arena. And others, uh, a cardiologist friend of mine, said, Laura, I can't even begin to tell you about this electronic medical records issue. It's a complete fraud, and it's it's ending up hurting our, our practice of medicine, not helping it. So I'm, I'm hearing it from, from both sides here, and then, of course, the patients as well. Tell me how your practice operates and how it might be a model for other doctors across the country. Well, I think your, your, your intro monologue there about the complexity of the medical payment or medical billing system is, is where it really all starts. Um, I'm a physician, I have a master's in public health, and also have uh, a keen interest in macroeconomics. And I'm an entrepreneur on top of all of that. Uh, and, and I don't understand half of what I read in medical billing and coding systems. Um, I mean, it is the ultimate bureaucracy um, in many ways, a privatized bureaucracy. But, um, and, and so I think that's the root of, of all of our trouble. And whenever I talk to people about uh, health care, um, they immediately think of health insurance and how to fix the health insurance system. And they don't make a distinction between what I do, which is, Thank God I'm not an insurance person, uh, and, and what the insurance company does. And so it's really difficult for me to even talk about what I do because people's minds have been so warped about what is health care and what is health insurance. Um, in the regular health care system, everything, everything, whether it's a stubbed toe or uh, cancer or everything in between, is, is managed by a third party, and sometimes it's government and sometimes it's a private insurance company. Um, and that's kind of how we've done things since, you know, the early 70s since the invention of the HMO or managed care. And, and really what I do is, is kind of what doctors, uh, neighborhood or country doctors used to do before managed care ran everything. And I list all of my prices up front. And by doing that, I don't have to worry about that uh, complex coding and billing system. I don't, have, I don't pay anyone to do any of that stuff. It's just me and a nurse. And we list all of our prices up front and make it really affordable for people. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of my people are uninsured, the, the very people that Obamacare is uh, designed to work for. I'm doing it right now. I didn't need Obamacare to, to help my patients. I just 
do it for a very reasonable cost. Let's, and, um, let's go through I, some I, of I, quite frankly, wasn't willing to wait around for things to get better. Right. Let's go through some of the services um, that you yeah. uh, you provide. Now you're a you're a general practitioner. Is that correct? Yeah, family medicine. Okay, family, yeah, family medicine. medicine. And we know from all of our research on this that the number of family practitioners is declining in the United States, and in much. Uh, to do with what you're just you just, just just described, which is the complexity of the administration of the of the paperwork and also the the ultimate reimbursement you get, which is quite little. So you have the high cost of practice, and then you have very little in the way of actual remuneration. So you've decided on simple things. Let's say, let's do a strep test. What does a strep test run in your office? Well, the way, the way that my practice works is, is we have a membership fee that people pay that's 10 or $20 a month based upon their age. So if you're 29 and under, if you're a young, young person, it's $10, and if you're 30 and up, it's $20. And we do strep tests, EKGs, urine tests, urine pregnancy tests, uh, quick emails, phone calls for no charge at all. That's all included in our, in our membership fee. So actually when you come in, if you get a strep test, we don't charge for that at all. So that's just part of the fee. So that's that's yeah. like a copayment for a prescription. That's a that's very that's yeah, a very it, little exactly. fee. Exactly. And there are a lot of things. Um, uh, the, the article that that kind of <laughs> has brought me all this attention was called the the Obamacare excuse me the Obamacare revolt. Um, and and the system that we have in place um, before Obama was elected uh, was was terrible, and, and everyone realized that and recognized that. But um, Really, the, the fee-for-service uh, system where in primary care where you, you pay um, a fee for every single time that you interact with a doctor is, is part of our problem, uh, and, and there's people both on the left and right that realize that. But by us having a membership fee, it lets me you know, do quick emails back and forth with patients. I don't have to charge them for every little thing I do. Um, and so it just makes it really upfront and really honest for people, and it, and it works out really well for primary care. Well, let's talk about using Skype. And email in exchange for uh, this fee for uh, monthly fee yeah. deal that you do. So, yeah. how many people do you see via Skype? How many people do you see in person? Um, What's the percentage? I, for the most part, yeah, I offer people. Um, I offer people to do webcam or virtual visits, as I call them. And I'd say about a quarter of our visits are either over the phone uh, or over a webcam, and about 75% are in person. There's a lot of uh, medical companies out there doing uh, online doctors. Uh, that are, are, are quite cool in some of the things that they do, but I don't think that the technology, and I'm a, I'm a huge geek, uh, but I don't think it should replace uh, the ability to come in and, and see me in person. But for things that are, are very routine or following up on things, I think it's a fantastic way to do things and much more efficient. People don't have to take a day off work. To do you, do you agree that the Do you agree that part of the problem here is when insurance companies came into being for just routine office visits? I mean, when someone breaks breaks his arm, the insurance company gets involved. When someone has a sore throat, the insurance company gets involved. When someone yeah. needs a pap smear, the insurance company gets involved. Yeah. Insurance, you always think of insurance as catastrophic. That's for truly yeah. credit, catastrophic events. But now it became about everything, and so you see a doctor for five minutes and $120. You see a doctor for 40 minutes and $120. Well, yeah, and that's why I think it's very hard to even talk about health care and health insurance. And the part that was so frustrating and has been frustrating to me since um, since entering into medicine uh, and, and, and learning about how the health care system works is that when people say insurance, they don't really mean insurance. What they're talking about is managed care, and that has been around since uh, – um, 
than Teddy Kennedy in 1973 and Richard Nixon, something bipartisan. Look what we got. Um, and, and, and so that concept that a middleman should manage every single dollar that is spent uh, has been around for such a long time that people don't even realize it's a possibility not to go through that. And, and I always use the example that imagine if your car insurance covered oil changes and tire rotations and someone to, no, to clean off your windows. And that's what would happen, or, or your groceries. Um, and I'm not arguing against the concept of insurance. I think if something is very unexpected and expensive, then, of course, insurance is needed to protect yourself from a catastrophic loss. But if you know something is going to happen, why do we then want to pay a middleman, whether it's government or private, to, to take some of that money um, and, and, and inflates the cost on both ends? And that's what people don't realize, and, and people – you know, and, and politics are always arguing about what the what the doctors are getting reimbursed for Medicare, and that's always a big debate in the medical community. And I think the problem is it's not that we don't get paid enough. Uh, in fact, I think in many ways doctors get paid too much, but we have to get paid that much because the cost of doing business is oh, so yeah. high. No, no, it's, and, and any other business owner recognizes. I think it's very sad for um, these these practices where you, you have a real relationship with a doctor, and that's just over. People don't understand those those relationships are are going to end, except well, if you have a doc. Me. Yeah, well, I, I, if you didn't interrupt <laughs> me, I love you. But if you didn't interrupt me, you would. I was just getting to that, Mister Ants in the Pants. Uh, so, so you have a direct primary care relationship, and it's quite different. Even if it's on Skype, I mean, you can. On Skype, you can see the doctor, and you know he can't take your pulse or the not yet. I mean, that technology will be there, but. But in the in the end, I think people it, it's a relationship with the doctor that you have to you have to have this bond with the doctor and the insurance company gets in the middle and it changes all of that. Uh, but we have about twenty seconds, doctor. But I, will this work in places other than Kansas and Lawrence, Kansas? You have, you're doing really well with this practice, but can this be a model for other family practitioners elsewhere? Well, they're already doing it. There's there's dozens and hundreds of doctors who are doing it, some a little bit differently than me. Uh, I hear from them every day, doctors interested in, in mimicking what I'm doing or figuring out how to do this. And I, I think it could work anywhere, rural, urban, suburban. I think it could work anywhere. There's, it's, it's so simple. There's no reason it couldn't. It shouldn't. Oh, well, it's terrific to talk to you. Dr. New and a big profile of him got a lot of attention. He's a direct primary care physician in Lawrence, Kansas, and a good man. I like the fact that he's going around this behemoth of the insurance industry and Obamacare both. On the Laura Ingram Show, solutions, we need to find them. Up next, the Gang of Eight split over the immigration issue. Uh-oh. The Laura Ingram Show. All right, so we're back live. So, again, big shout-out to our, uh, our good friend, uh, Dr. Ryan Newhoffel, Dr. New. And again, again, I'm, I'm going to get email and, and tweets about this, regardless of what your political leanings are. Okay, the point is, family docs, people like Dr. New are getting out there, being recognized on national radio shows, telling the story of family medicine, telling the story of why our our healthcare system is broken. I applaud that. Um, Get more information from Dr. New, uh, New Care Family Medicine, newcare.net, N-E-U-C-A-R-E.net. Also, a big shout-out to uh, people who have been tweeting along uh, with the show. Uh, there's, a, there's a podcast out there called Your Health Talk. Go to yourhealthtalk.org. It is a medical student-created, produced 
uh, podcast. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, go go there right now. Well, maybe not right now, but but after the show, uh, go there uh, and, and check out the interview because uh, they they they, uh, they interviewed uh, Doctor New on their uh, podcast as well. Uh, did a great job there as well. I hope to be collaborating with them in the next uh, few weeks for a superstar project, awesome project. So stay tuned for that. Your health talk doc. YourHealthTalk.org, and also a big shout out to our friends uh, uh, at the California Academy of Family Physicians, who's tweeting along with us today. FamilyDocs.org, and of course our friends at the Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians, PAFP.com. That's what happens, you know, when you listen to the show live uh, and, and you're tweeting out during the show. I will give you a shout out during the show. So uh, how about that? How about that, kids? <laughs> All right, one more segment here. I will have a a, 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 a a monologue after this break here to kind of sum up today's show. It's been a very good show today. Thank you to everybody who uh, have listened live and also uh, download the podcast. Here. We'll be right back here on the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. Media messaging and family medicine, my take on it right after this. <laughs> Back to the final segment of today's Family Medicine Rocks podcast, FamilyMedicineRocks.com. And, yes, that's right. This week, I, I believe it's today or tomorrow. I have to check my calendar. It is Doctor's Day, National Doctor's Day. And I've talked about this on the show before. And uh, shout-out to all my colleagues out there. Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, just uh, it's, it, it's nice. It's, I mean, there's a lot of hospitals out there that uh, – uh, hospitals, health systems, doctors' offices, um, other organizations uh, that uh, uh, that recognize physicians during uh, Doctors' Day, and uh, it's nice, you know, it's warm and fuzzy, and and uh, you know, why not? Uh, so, in my uh, uh, closing uh, thoughts here, when, when it comes to media messaging and family medicine, and, and I have said many, 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 many times in my local and national presentations, in my writings, and in this podcast, we, we meaning family medicine, we have let others tell the family medicine story, and it's the wrong story. That is kind of part of how we got here in the first place as a specialty. Family physicians and family medicine must, 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 must be media savvy in today's world. I'm not talking nationally, of course nationally, I'm, but I'm not talking nationally. We have to be media savvy at the grassroots, at the local level. That's where it is, people. That is where our messaging should start. That's where our messaging should focus 
with our own patients, with our own community to tell the story of family medicines. Other communities, other communities out there, you know, like those against family medicine, they have learned to play this game pretty well. And it seems to me that family medicine, at least in the media, family medicine, for the most part, I'm probably generalizing, but for the most part is always playing defense. And that's why we're sounding defensive when we're on these TV interviews and and radio shows and in articles. Family medicine needs to cause a revolution. We've been t- we've been saying that for a long time. We need to be proactive and disrupt our current healthcare system. That's what hashtag FM Revolution is all about. We need to not only present our own data of why family medicine matters, we must make family medicine advocates and family physicians aware of this data. We shouldn't complain as a family medicine community. We should not complain. We should persuade. That's what we should do. And I admit that I am too busy treading water in this broken healthcare system to do a lot of this research myself, to find a lot of this information. I need the friends of family medicine to make me aware of this information. I'll put it on my website. I'll talk about it on this show. I need help from my family medicine community to battle the war of ideas that is going on out there in the court of public opinion and in the media. Because if we, as family physicians and family medicine, cannot advocate for ourselves, well, then who will? That ends my show here today. Thank you so much for uh, those of you who have uh, listened live and those of you who are uh, listening on the podcast. It's a good one today. I feel feel pretty good about this one. But next week, next week is going to be good. Next week, show number 300. Oh, it's going to be awesome. Our good friend uh, Dr. Meredith Gould will be here Thursday, April 4, 2013 at noon Eastern Daylight Time. Meredith Gould, digital strategist, author, blogger, founder of the Church Social Media Chat, pound sign C-H-S-O-C-M. And our topic will be centered around this tweet that she had last week. Quote, ah, Twitter. I remember when public conversations offered rich engagement among tweets wrestling with great questions. Now I only get that. The uh, direct message will be talking about the changing state of Social media, you, a great discussion. I should probably write a blog post about that um, as well. <laughs> and also very excited about uh, all the uh, all the shows coming up in uh, April as well. And uh, that's all I have for you today. Thanks to everybody again for listening live and also uh, downloading um, on the uh, on the podcast. Uh, go to familymedicinerocks.com now that the uh, link is fixed. And uh, hey, uh, again. Again, as I say uh, almost every show, I am always humbled uh, that people want to uh, 
uh, listen uh, to me talk or read my blog post or do anything like that. We are getting thousands and thousands of downloads every week um, of the podcast here, and it's all because of each of one of you out there. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule uh, to listen to me rant on and on and on. Uh, my name is Mike Savella. I go to FamilyMedicineRocks.com, and for more information, follow me on Twitter, uh, on Facebook. Get all my information at FamilyMedicineRocks.com. For those of you who uh, celebrate Easter, happy Easter, and uh, we will talk to you all very soon. Have a good week. Have a good weekend. Have a good day, everybody.